Exploring the natural world, one podcast episode at a time. This is For What It's Earth. Hi all, and thank you for joining me for another episode of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa, of the Art of Ecology. Here, nature enthusiasts, animal lovers, and eco-warriors can discover and explore so many facets of the environment that we all love and some creative ways to make a positive difference for the planet. This week, we're going to take a look at unique adaptations that some winter plants have that maybe, especially if you're like me, you might want as well. About this time, some years even earlier, each year I start missing the sunshine and the warmth like crazy. I get the winter blues and I can really tell that my mental well-being is taking a deep dive as I have less access to sunlight and therefore less access to vitamin D that keeps me happy and just overall healthy. Things aren't looking like they're growing and it looks just gray and dreary and depressing outside. I always do notice that when I do get outside and go into the natural world, like when I'm going for a hike or when I'm foraging or when I walk my dog, that I do always feel better, but it takes a ton of motivation for me to actually say, yeah, I'm going to go outside today, even though it's snowy, even though it's cold. Clearly, I don't like the cold. And if you are like me, fortunately, nature's got my back and I can always get my spring fix even during the last dreary winter days. A few flowers also get tired of the gray like I do, and they actually do something about it. They heat up the snow around them and melt it away, making way for their cheerful colors and their pungent fragrances. Now these are some really super, super cool flowers. Many of them are pretty easily recognizable. We may think of our first winter wildflowers as our snowdrop or Galanthus nivalis as its scientific name. These are some tiny, tiny, tiny short little flowers. And for the most part, winter wildflowers aren't gonna get very tall. They're spending a lot of their energy on this specific warming adaptation that we're going to talk about, and so they have short, small flowers. Snowdrops might be anywhere from two to six inches tall, depending on the variety or cultivar. Think of cultivar kind of like breeds of dogs. You know, we have our Canis familiaris, our puppy dog, but then within that, we've got chihuahuas, pit bulls, corgis, labs. Bichon Frise, we've got all sorts of things. That's kind of what a plant cultivar is. Snowdrops have white, almost bell-shaped flowers with little green markings on the petal tips. They're kind of cool little guys. Some of them have these little bells with fringes on the ends or multiple petals, or some have ginormous bells in comparison to the rest of their genus. Then we have our crocus. A lot of times we may think of crocuses as these little garden bulbs that we plant and they can be white or yellow or purple. Personally, 
I really like the yellow ones. I have a variety in my garden and my favorites are these yellow ones with tiny orange striations. I also have purple with bits of lavender in it too. They are beautiful and honestly, an amazing source of winter color after all of this gray and white. Another winter wildflower we may think of is the skunk cabbage. If you live anywhere near a bog or mushy, gushy wetland environments here in North America, you may already be very familiar with the skunk cabbage. It's a purple green sort of alien looking bulb thing that comes up out of the ground with a whitish yellow floral part in the very center. The outside structure of this bulb thing is called a bract, which is a petaloid structure, and it also is known as a spathe. It has inverse colorings. So for example, if you have one skunk cabbage and that bract or spathe is green, it'll have purple striations and speckles. If it is maroon or deep, deep purple, it'll have green and yellow speckles all over it. There's some really cool wildflowers. And as the seasons change, this tiny alien bulb thing gives way to giant leafy greens. And these vibrant, almost neon green leaves take over wetland environments. And I'm not saying they'll take over as in they're invasive. In fact, they're natives here in Pennsylvania, but they're just so huge that you can see their leaves tremendously. They are so obvious. What do all of these plants have in common? The snowdrop, the crocus, the skunk cabbage, and even a magnolia. How are they similar? Well, they can all burn through snow, which is so cool. I wish I could do that too, but guess what? As much as, you know, if I were to stick my hand in the snow, I'd be super cold, super grumpy, super miserable. It'd be awful. But where my hand is, right around that area in the snow, it would melt just through my body heat. We actually have a similar ability that these plants have. So we can feel a little bit better about this incredible adaptation and a little better about the winter season in general. We can warm ourselves up, yay. So let's take a look at thermogenesis. This is what plants are doing and we can do it too, maybe just not as efficiently as these particular plants can. Thermogenesis is the process of creating one's own heat. As warm-blooded or endo, think inside endo, endothermic animals, you know, humans, kittens, dogs, cats, giraffes, goats, whatever mammal you have, we all have this ability. Being an endotherm means we can warm up from the inside out instead of needing to sun ourselves on a toasty rock or roadside like an ecto in um, outside or cold-blooded reptile like think snakes or turtles do. We can simply warm our bodies up on our own. And yeah, I may struggle with thermal regulation, but still, I'm not a reptile. We may not need to bask in order to absorb heat. And instead, we ingest food 
metabolize it, and create heat. Do you know what a calorie is? It's actually a unit of measurement for heat. The process of metabolizing nutrients is very similar to the workings of a factory. And boy, with all that work, can it get warm. In fact, when we have a fever, it's the body working on double time to create extra heat and to bake that pathogen or bacteria from the inside out. It may only take a little temperature increase to kill that pathogen, or it may take a lot. And that's when our fevers can get really dangerous for us. It's going to kill the pathogen, but it may also do damage to our own cellular structure. But back to just heat in general, we have the ability to create heat. And it's not just to maintain homeostasis or this very day-to-day -day average and day-to-day -day balance, but also to keep our bodies safe from foreign bodies. So let's take a look at plants now, especially the ones that bloom in early winter, such as the magnolia and skunk cabbage. They're doing similar things. These flowers not only do photosynthesis, but they can metabolize as well. They're ingesting nutrients, just not through a mouth like ours, but they're absorbing and sucking nutrients up through their roots. They're going to metabolize it and produce heat in their cells in their various organelles. Organelles are like many little organs that live inside cells and all work hard and all have their own function. Their mitochondria, which if you live in North America and are part of the public school system, you may roll your eyes when I say mitochondria, because apparently the public school system really pounds into your head that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, because apparently that's what we really care about. I don't know. And this powers the cell both in plants and in animals. For those who might not know what it is, either you haven't reached that level of biology yet, or your school system actually appreciates a wide diverse amount of information beyond just what a mitochondria is. So let's teach you what one is. They are, again, a little organelle, which acts like a factory. It undergoes respiration and produces energy. As the plant gains energy through metabolism of nutrients, eventually the mitochondria is able to go through respiration. Through this, they can now increase temperature. Now in these thermogenic plants, their ability to increase their surrounding temperature is really impressive. It's not just they're producing heat, but they're producing 50 to 60 degrees of Fahrenheit heat or 10 to 15 degrees Celsius of heat. That's an insane amount of heat produced. Many plants can just metabolize glucose to create heat, but few do it so well as these snow melting plants. For me, it's always a happy sight when we see the purple tops of a crocus bursting through the snow or the white snow melting away to reveal the milky white snowdrops. The Galanthus nivalis, or the snowdrop, is such an iconic late winter flower. Here in southeastern Pennsylvania, they can be found along roadsides and in wooded environments, and we can find them blooming through mid-February to early March, even if there's still snow on the ground. Think about it. These are in freezing environments, and through thermogenesis, 
they skyrocket the temperature to what feels like a late spring or early summer day in their own little tiny microclimate. Of course they're able to burn through the snow and grow. As you walk through the woods, see if you can find these marvelous heralds of spring. Skunk cabbage loves marshy wetlands. If you have a stream or pond in your area, take a look around and see if you can find any. They're going to be very low to the ground. In their floral state, as opposed to their leafy state, they're only about three to four inches tall and look very alien indeed. They're almost like little bulbs that you can crunch and step on. And you'll absolutely know you stepped on it because they produce a bleh, really gross smell. Your boots or your sneakers or your dog, if you're out walking your dog, may smell a little funky when you get home, but you're also going to notice them very easily, especially if it's snowy. Skunk cabbage or Simplocarpus foetidus, so foetid means gross smelling, they push their way up through the snow and as you walk around, you may notice large rings of melted snow with the skunk cabbage spathe and spadix flower in the center. So now the question begs to be asked, why would these plants care about metabolism and heat production? I mean, it's rare for a plant to care about skyrocketing its heat. It takes so much valuable and precious energy to do that. So what is the point? Ultimately, it all comes down to how the plants are designed to continue their species through seed dispersal. Some plants that undergo thermogenesis, such as the magnolia, have some very unique pollinators. Magnolias are ancient plants. They existed way before pollinators such as bumblebees and butterflies even existed. So they rely on something a little more prehistoric, on beetles. However, beetles don't really care about sweet tasting nectar like a bumblebee does. Bumblebees like to use their tongues to lick up nectar and beetles, they don't. They have chewing mouth parts. And as they chew the magnolia petals, they roll all over in that pollen. When the beetle eats through, gets what it wants, goes to another tree and finds a new blossom, it's going to chew, chew, chew and roll, roll, roll in even more genetically diverse pollen and it's going to spread the previous flower's pollen to this new tree. Therefore, now our magnolia tree has been pollinated. It's going to be able to produce wonderfully genetically diverse seeds to continue its species. Have you ever smelled magnolia blossoms? They can smell pretty good in the early season when they're first blooming. As this plant is undergoing thermogenesis, it's almost as if they're acting like an essential oil diffuser or a candle. When this plant heats up, the aromatic oils of the flower heat up as well. And upon being exposed to this heat, that oil becomes volatile, meaning it's kind of getting evaporated into the air. And now those oils get dispersed and shoot up our noses as we breathe or if we're a beetle, into the beetle's nasal equivalent. This sudden thermogenesis can help attract the beetle and let it know where those yummy petals are located to chew on. 
the skunk cabbage also has some unique pollination characteristics. Again, back to the stink of a skunk cabbage, their foul, skunky smell, hence the name, attracts flies thinking that they might find some rotting meat to feast on. Instead, they land on a flower. Oh, so sad for the little fly. And they're going to get pollen on their legs and bodies as they investigate for where this rotting meat is. Eventually, they're going to fly off very dejected to the next thing that smells like their tasty rotting treat. This flower is a spathe and spadix flower, which I mentioned previously, meaning that there's this large bract or petaloid structure called the spathe that surrounds and protects the spadix. That spadix is a large stalk, and that is what is covered in the flowering parts. If you're having a hard time picturing what this might look like, there are some other, a little more common spathe and spadix flowers. So think of your peace lily, with its large white bract surrounding that white floral stalk in the center or spadix. It's a houseplant, uh, really great around Easter. You can also think of the wild jack in the pulpit or anthuriums. Anthuriums are a houseplant here, a tropical houseplant that looks so fake, but it's real. They have large neon fire engine red spathes or that petaloid structure, and it looks like it's made of rubber or plastic. It's really shiny and thick. That is next to and kind of surrounds a bright yellow spadix, which is that floral stalk, which also kind of looks like it's made of rubber. They don't look real, but they're really cool. Very real plants. Now back to the skunk cabbage. When a fly is going inside of this space, this protected part, they're now protected from wind and winter cold. It's kind of a cozy place to hang out for these early emerging insects as they're investigating for that rotting meat. Ultimately, plants want to be pollinated. When they're pollinated, they're going to be able to create fertilized seeds that can be dispersed later on to perpetuate the species. If there's a way that plants can make their pollen sources more conveniently accessible or attractive for their specialized pollinators, they will. Now let's think about some other plants that adapt to better attract pollinators. Orchids are really crazy, well-known for their pollination adaptations. Some orchids are so specifically pollinated that only one insect species, for some it's an orchid bee, can pollinate them. And orchids have co-evolved alongside their pollinators. Some orchids look like a female bee bum in order to attract male bees that crawl around trying to mate. And they wind up pollinating the orchid at the same time so bizarre. Others, maybe not orchids, but just other flowers in general, know that their pollinator is a hummingbird. So they produce pigments to attract the bird because their favorite color is red. So that's why you have bee balm, you have trumpet vine. These are all red, burgundy, or a slight reddish orange color. 
other flowers know, hey, I'm pollinated by a bat and bats are out at night. So they're not really caring about my color, but instead they're caring about my smell. Bat pollinated flowers are usually white since producing pigments takes up way too many resources and they smell very fragrant. Overall, plants know what they're doing and they want to be pollinated. So they adapt to make it so much more easy for the pollinator to have access and find the pollen or nectar that they're looking for. So for what it's earth, by exploring the natural world and getting to experience these unique plant adaptations can increase our connection to the natural world by getting us outside thinking critically and observing these plants, but they'll also increase our desire to protect and conserve the plants and their habitats, especially when we get to really see and experience these super amazing adaptations. Now that you know that this skunk cabbage goes through thermogenesis and plays a role with insect pollination and it's so cool and in-depth, you may be more likely to really care about wetland habitat protection and making sure that your streams are healthy to support skunk cabbage populations. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural worlds with the Art of Ecology. Now I'm really excited to announce that next week, I'm going to be joined by my first guest of season two. Caitlin Whalen is taking classes currently to learn more about horticultural therapy and potentially become a registered horticultural therapist. We're going to be discussing, kind of going along with talking about this week, of we're noticing our brains are kind of feeling the winter blues. We'll talk more about that and the importance of plants for our mental health brain function, cognitive function, both by indoor plants and outdoor gardens, and about the necessity of getting outside into the natural world. So join us to learn more about horticultural therapy and how to add more plants to your life this winter season. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please support, review, and continue to follow along. Next week's episode is a good one and you'll be able to explore more of the wonderful ecosystems that we're a part of. For What It's Earth can be found on many podcast streaming platforms. For more tips and eco-inspiration, check out my blog at www.theartofecology.com. And you can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at The Art of Ecology. And with that, I will see you next week along with Caitlin Whalen for What It's Earth. <laughs>